people always say, well, what does it mean? It's better to say, you know, what doesn't it mean? It means everything. And that's why we're so passionate about it. It's the simplicity of it that actually brings the power. You come, you ain't leaving until you're done. Oh fuck, if it gets too hard, I can pull out. No, you can't pull out. Otherwise, I'll take you around the back and beat the shit of you. <laughs> the art form itself, it doesn't belong to me, personally. It belongs to my culture, it belongs to my people. I'm a representative of my people. This process that we have created, it's unique to us as Māori. My name is Steph Bastian. In my 10 years on the road, I've met many unique characters in the tattoo business, and they all have one thing in common, incredible stories. Stories of past times, personal growth, priceless experience, and of course, bizarre happenings. I want to share those stories with you. This is Tattoo Tales. Welcome back, everybody. The guest for this episode is Gordon Toy. Last year, I went to New Zealand and I was doing my research to find artists that would best represent Kiwi tattooing. As always, people with over 20 years in the business and people that contributed to put their country on the map. Gordon's name is one of the names that I kept being referred to over and over. Gordon is a native Maori artist that in a time where tattooing wasn't seen as something to proudly pursue, he fought to reestablish the dignity that this ancient practice deserves. Deeply connected to this cultural heritage, Gordon proudly represents his people and his tradition through different mediums like tattooing, wood carving, and painting. So I decided to go all the way to the beautiful town of Mapua, rent a bike, because apparently there's no buses, <laughs> cycle 30Ks to get to this beautiful seaside town so I could have a chat with him. Needless to say that his experience was something that I really look forward to and carries special value. I feel privileged to have had an insight in this unique and ancient culture and through his recollection to have a peak and a proud and kind artist and his lifetime of experience. I hope you enjoy as much as I did. Ladies and gentlemen, Gordon Toy. been tattooing for Gordon? Uh, I've been tattooing now for 25 years. Doesn't seem that long but um, I guess 25 years is a you know it's a quarter of a century. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 And you're from Auckland yeah? Yeah I grew up in Auckland and uh, I grew up in a little place called Otara which has kind of always had a bad rap for you know um, the lower part of town I guess the Bronx or whatever you want to call it the ghetto of, of Auckland. It's always had that reputation, so we've grown up, you know, with a lot of interesting characters around us and um, very influential people in terms of our culture. You know, the people that kind of make the stand and fight for our rights, you know, there were a lot of those types of people in the 70s in in our neighbourhood at that time. You know, and they were always sort of interesting times growing up in in, in South Auckland. But originally I'm from, I'm further north, from a place called Hokianga, and that's about four hours north on the west coast of Auckland, and um, that's a magical place. That's that's I guess where I draw a lot of my inspiration as an artist from, and um, especially when it comes to tribal styles and you know that sort of thing. Mm. And how did you get? What was your journey that brought you here? Like, how did you get into 
how tattooing did you get to get into your life? Obviously, you grew up with your cultural heritage, oh, you know. Um, I I got into tattooing uh, in the early nineties, and um, like what I started out doing from school was uh, wood carving, traditional wood carving, and that was mid seventies. And uh, I had a I was lucky enough to have um, a guy come to our school by the name of Henare Mahanga, and um, this guy. He could do it all. He could, um, you know, do our traditional speech making. He could do weapons, Māori weapons. He could carve. He could, he could do everything. Everything you needed to be a Māori at that time, he could do, and then some. And uh, he introduced me to wood carving. And at that time, I think it's safe to say that the high school that I was going to was getting ready to, to throw me out. And thankfully for this guy, Henare Mahanga, he introduced me to carving, which was, at that time, the only reason why I was going to school. Um, he was a graduate of a carving school in Rotorua. It's the foremost carving school, uh, you know, in this country for traditional arts. And um, he suggested that I apply. And I was accepted in 1980. Uh, it's a three-year course, and the... the study there is quite intensive and it covers a huge range of all the different styles from different tribes throughout um, the island yeah also taught traditional house building and canoe building and all that sort of stuff weaving some uh, you know uh, many aspects of of maori art and after i graduated there i moved back to auckland and i was with another friend um terangi kaihoro who was also a graduate of, of the carving school who decided that he was going to take up a, a tattoo apprenticeship to revive traditional moko. And uh, at that stage of the game, I, was, I wasn't even interested in tattooing, you know. I was still very passionate about wood carving. But I knew I wanted to wear moko, and that was a fact. And so um, I said to my mate, well, you go off and learn how to tattoo. And when you're ready, I, I, I would really, really like to receive my uh, traditional bodysuit, which we call a puhuru. And after about a year and a half, he came back and uh, showed me a little bit of work that he had done on himself. And I thought, man, that's, that's me. So from there, I began my journey with tattooing. And even after I received my bodysuit, I, I still didn't really have an, you know, uh, an inkling to sort of like get into tattooing. It wasn't until one day that Laurie and I were, um, were, were carving together and uh, his bodysuit was unfinished. I, I just asked him, you know, I said, hey man, what you going to do about your legs? And he says, oh, you know, you should draw something on there. So I did. And then after I, I, I drew something on his legs to finish off a particular design on there, he said, oh, why don't you tattoo it? And just the mere thought of like tattooing the cunt that fucking tattooed me and put me through all that pain. I couldn't resist, you know, just to just to get get one back at him. So um, actually, from that that moment on, I've I've never really looked back. And uh, I guess it was about maybe three years into into my tattooing uh, journey, I met Hank Hank Schiffmacher from Amsterdam. And it was funny because I'd seen a documentary of uh, that Hank done, and um, and there was some Maori stuff in there that he included, and I, I wasn't really too happy with it, you know. And, and um, my mate Laurie, uh, who was having dinner with Hank at his place, 
suggest that I come and, and meet Hank, you know, and I thought, right, this is my opportunity to have a go at this fucker, you know, because back then I was very, very passionate, you know, and um, anyway, uh, I went around to the party and there were a few Samoan tattooists there and, and a couple of Māori tattooists and, and Hank and Louisa. Rather than just sort of go at it like a bull at a gate, I decided to sort of like, to sit back and, and listen, you know. I think that was my best thing that I could have done for myself because as I listened to Hank and listened to the other tattooists in the room, I realised that Hank was like me, very passionate about tattooing. He was also very passionate about exposing, you know, some of the tattoo arts like Polynesian uh, tattoo and moko to the world, you know. That itself didn't really interest me, but he interested me, you know. He was just a very eclectic, kind of a guy and so was his wife as the night sort of progressed um, Hank and I sparked up a conversation and and we actually got on really really well he's not a hard guy to get on with he kind of made a joke about like I should come to Amsterdam and I joked back saying that he should pay for my tickets <laughs> and um, a couple of months later he, he rang me up and said I'll meet you in LA I've got your tickets to Amsterdam you just need to make it to LA and from that event the rest is history, really. He, when was he, that? Oh, shit, man. That would have been mid-90s, mm. 95, 96. And um, I guess guy, you guys there bond, and those things usually they stay forever. Right? Yeah. You make build a friendship that can yeah. become... Yeah, we did. And um, I went to Amsterdam with him, and he had a museum in the Red Light District. I mean, this is a little boy from South Auckland, you know? little Māori boy from South Auckland. So being exposed to... Uh, Amsterdam and the red light district and all the... That's a lot to take. <laughs> that's a lot to take, man. So I was fairly naive when I went over there, but it was a great experience and I had never ever tattooed so many white people in my life, which kind of made me feel a little bit uncomfortable, really. Like I say, I was very passionate about my culture and tattooing all these white people and there were literally lines of these fuckers, you know, lining up outside the door and then there was a line down the road, you know, waiting to get... Uh, to have work done so yeah it kind of freaked me out a little bit you know the whole thing and I don't think personally professionally I was kind of ready for that kind of exposure I came back home and I went back up north to Hukianga and I spoke with my grandmother about it and um, you know I just wanted her her opinion on whether or not I should continue to go down this path and go overseas and expose our culture to you know the rest of the world kind of a thing Anyway, after a long conversation, she basically sort of broke it down to this. You've got two options. You either never go back over there again, and if you don't, never speak of it again. Because the more you talk about it, the more you'll regret it. So never speak of it. Um, or you can go back over there and just smash it out of the ballpark. And so for the next, you know, 20 plus years I've been going back and forth to Amsterdam and out of that I met another woman, Hank's second wife, Patricia Stur. And together her and I have um, created two books that, you know, um, talk about the renaissance of uh, moko here in Aotearoa and also the connection with tattooing moko in Amsterdam with a lot of the Indonesian and Moluku people that I've come into contact with over there. We've had numerous exhibitions promoting, you know, um, Māori arts and uh, tattooing, carving, weaving, 
There were a couple of exhibitions we, you know, I took over some weavers and stuff like that. Yeah, Amsterdam for me has been um, a huge springboard into kind of like um, sharing our art with the rest of the world and our culture. Like a second home, almost. Pretty much. Yeah, I mean, I even culture, married a yeah. Dutch woman, you know. <laughs> yeah. Most tourists bring back clogs. I brought back a woman. <laughs> and I, you know, happily uh, still married with her. And now we have uh, a child together who's six years old. And um, yeah, we live here in the South Island now. So, you know, I mean... The journey continues. This June I'm returning back to Amsterdam with my daughter and she's also a tattooist. Yeah, she's going to have one hell of an adventure over there. It's, mm. it's the right age. It's it? the perfect age. Yeah. Yeah, and she's a bloody good tattooist as well. So. Um, and you said, you, you said the word renaissance. Like in, before, like in the 70s and stuff, I guess the Maori tattooing wasn't seen maybe here as maybe so accepted or so. Nah. I mean, our society, you know, I mean, to a certain degree, um, oppressed a lot of that, that type of um, cultural practices that we've done, especially religion and that type of thing. But in the early, early 70s, there, you know, we've got a lot of Māori gangs over here. And, um, and in some way, they, they were part of the renaissance of bringing back moko, in particular facial moko. The warrior culture. Yeah, you know, I mean, the gang started taking on facial moko again, and, and sure, it was fairly naive designs and mixed in with their gang regalia and all that sort of stuff, but nonetheless, it, it had started to sort of like make its way back from the dark or under the ground or wherever it was uh, hiding for that amount of time that it was. Um, it had started to um, happen, and then in the early 80s, in Aotearoa here, um, there were a lot of protesting going on in, with regards to uh, our Māori language. So in the 60s, for example, our grandparents and our parents, many of them were, were beaten and um, mistreated at schools and told not to speak uh, Māori. So um, the 70s were, you know, mid-70s were, you know, our people had kind of had enough of their bullshit, you know. And we started to, um, you know, rebel against the system. And out of that came a lot of movements that were pro-active uh, in um, uh, promoting Māori initiatives, you know. Uh, one of the main ones was the language, our, our spoken uh, language. So around about the, the early 80s, mid-80s, we started to establish language schools for our babies. And these places were cur- called um, Kohangareo. It is basically a uh, language nest. But as these babies started getting older and, and going into mainstream schools, they were losing the language. So uh, again, you know, we were out on the, the pavement. You know, many of our leaders, uh, men and women, protest to the government to try and establish schools where our children can go from preschool to mainstream schools and having the language uh, put into the system. So we now have, what is it, what are we, 2020? So now you can start your schooling from preschool and go right through to university in total immersion, Māori. So you can get your PhDs, your, all, your, all your trades, everything in our traditional languages. So it's come a long way since the early 80s uh, with regards to pushing the Māori language to the forefront making it recognised by the government as um, recognised indigenous language of this, of this land. Um, with that, you know, when people become more 
empowered by their own language and their own customs and their own protocols, there comes a sense of pride and a sense of celebration of who you are as, as a people. So uh, part of that celebration was moko. And um, many of our people in the early 90s and into the 2000s and stuff like that have, um, you know, reclaimed a lot of their, their ancestral designs, you know. So, for example, nowadays, you, you know, if you were to see somebody with a facial moko, you couldn't prejudge them and say, oh, yeah, they're a gang member or somebody that's, uh, uh, you know, leading the old uh, sinister life. Um, now you could be looking at a lawyer, you could be looking at a doctor, you could be looking at somebody in charge of a school or whatever, you know, professional Māori people uh, reclaiming their facial moko, their other um, uh, body parts on their bodies are covered in moko. I can remember when I first started getting tattooed, I was kind of considered to be a freak okay. amongst my own people, you know. Yeah. Um, so even your own people. Yeah, you know, I, I mean, it was, it was that indoctrinated into us. That wasn't a thing to do. It wasn't always easy when we started to revive moko. Um, there was a lot of struggle from our own people as well to come to grips with what the hell was going on, you know. On the other hand, there was more interest and more uh, excitement about like reviving moko from, you know, a larger percent of our people. And hence the reason why we, you know, they came to us as carvers because we knew the designs. So in those early, early 90s, there, you know, you could have counted the kaita or the Māori tattooists at that time on one hand. You know, there weren't many of us. In saying that, there were a number of uh, European or Pākehā, as we call them here, um, tattooists that encouraged uh, Māori to um, get into uh, tāmoko. One of them was uh, Roger Ingleton. Another one was uh, Phil Mathias up in Auckland and, and a few others around about, you know, the old school sort of tattooists, you know. Um, they, they saw it coming and they encouraged us to uh, pick up the challenge and, and learn the trade, you know. Yeah, it was exciting times back then, you know. Just I guess it must have been tough as well. It wasn't like it is now. So you had to push through and, and face, I guess, judgments. And, yeah. You know? Yeah, but that was the fun part, you know. I mean, that keeps you real, you know. Like, if you yeah. don't have people, you know, uh, trying to uh, have a go at you, you know, you, you start believing your own bullshit. And um, one thing about being Māori is that they keep you real, you know. And um, I appreciated all the criticism that we got because, uh, you know, I knew at the end of the day that the people that we were doing, you could see transformation. You could see them literally pick their heads up, push their chest out, you know, and be proud to be Māori. Whereas, you know... Again, back in the early 70s, it was all about simulation, you know. Trying to simulate into the cities and get jobs, get houses, you know, um, get an education, you know. So all my generation, for example, got English names. My children's generation have got names, you know, as long as your arm, you know. They, <laughs> yeah, they've all gone back to um, having Māori names, which is great, you know. And in my parents' day, you know, if you wanted to be Māori, it was like, well, you go, you go and be Māori over in that little Māori place, you know. So you were kind of taught to expose your Māoriness invertly, whereas now it's extrovert, you know. Our people are wearing, you know, traditional headdresses and combs and earrings and, you know, looking more and more Māori like our ancestors. And I think that's a great thing because that, that separates us from everybody else and it, it, it defines who we are as, a, as an indig indigenous race that actually has a lot to offer the rest of the world in terms of holding on to the things that we have been, you know, we've managed to hold on to, like a lot of our cost, 
customs and you know, our philosophies about life. And, you know, we share a lot of that with uh, the rest of the world as well, you know. Mm. Would you say that, you know, the fact that Maori got opened up to as well, white people and in Europe and they have people doing all over the world, obviously has negative sides as well. But would you say that that maybe helped as well to kind of open up this nah. feeling? No, nah, not at all. If you're going to open up anything indigenous, it has to happen at the source. From within. Yeah, within. You, you can't do it externally. You know, you're only scratching the surface, man, you know. Yeah, sure, there's been a lot of Western tattooists out there giving tribal tattoos a go and all that sort of stuff, and all power to them, I say, for them to revive an indigenous tattooing culture that's over a thousand years old, that's got to come within. Uh, it doesn't matter how committed or how dedicated they are, it's got to come from the people themselves, you know. We have to initiate it, we have to um, be in charge of it, and we determine the destiny of it, not anyone else. Whether or not it's appreciated, well, that's debatable as well, but, um, you know, again, if I mention Hank, people like him have, have encouraged us, you know, the indigenous people, not only Māori, but Samoans, Hawaiians, Tahitians. He's, he's been very, very instrumental in, in, in encouraging us to, um, you know, um, get back into our traditional arts, you know, like tattooing. So uh, having people like him is, you know, who are, is willing to sort of like teach us and guide us in that way is great. But there are a lot of tattooists out there that just cash in on, on tribal designs and they fucking know who they are. And they come up with all sorts of excuses to say this and that, that it's not. But at the end of the day, that's what pays their bills. And those ones that... Uh, have dedicated themselves to, you know, uh, tribal designs. You can see them, you know, from a mile away. That's all they do. A lot of them have come down here, worked with our people in Aotearoa, Samoa, Hawaii, Tahiti, and, and on and on throughout Polynesia. These guys have come down and lived with us. And that makes the difference between somebody in LA or somewhere else in the world. It just like, oh, I like Māori design. I like Samoan designs. I'm just going to do it, you know. Um, there's a big difference there, you know, and understanding how the designs work, the philosophy behind them, the genealogy behind them, the stories behind them, they all tell stories and they are all connected to a particular family, tribe, spiritual, physical, you know, it's a very holistic approach to tattooing, unlike the Western uh, uh, approach where you come into a tattoo shop and you pick number 57 and that's exactly what you get, number 57. Here, it's about um, understanding the, the client's background in terms of who they are as an individual, where they come from, who they're connected to, who their ancestral mountains, rivers, canoes, guardians, spiritual guardians, physical guardians, parents, brothers, sisters, dogs, cats, you name it. Uh, you know, people always say, well, what does it mean? It's better to say, you know, what doesn't it mean? It means everything. And that's why we're so passionate about it. And that's another reason why if indigenous people are going to reclaim their traditional designs, it's got to come from them. They're the only ones that know that, that inside story, that inside connection that connects them from the art form back to the land. It's almost like a spiritual journey between you and, and it's a, that it's, person. It's totally a spiritual journey without getting too sort of like, you know, religious on it. It's totally a spiritual journey, but... Um, it's not just about tattooing, you know, it's very much, as I said, uh, in a holistic approach to the art of tattooing. You know, uh, our carvings are connected to us, 
Our weaving is connected to us. The stonework we do is connected to us. The tattooing is connected to us. It all comes, the symbols all come from our environment to which we live in, then and now. And you can see them in the designs, you know. They represent mountains, rivers, the sea, the animals, the birds, the fish, you know, all these types of things. Rocks, all the different species of trees and things like that. But you, you, you can't just literally copy it. You have to understand the essence of where they come from, the source how they were created, who created them, where they were created, all those types of things. That adds to the to the palette, I guess, you know, of, of, of the art itself. It's um, you know, a painter needs paint and colours, you know. From a cultural perspective, we need we need to understand the environment so that we can take those elements from the environment and stick them into somebody's skin. It's like if you take those things off, then I guess it's just like a beautiful empty shell. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we don't, that's one of the reasons why we don't use colour, we just use black, you know, uh, we don't need colour to enhance our, uh, our stories. The lines are enough, the lines are uh, left behind are enough to tell the stories that are, you know, it's a little bit like a computer or a hard drive. The, the amount of information that you get from one piece, be it small or be it big, is limitless. And I guess, then if we talk about bodysuits, then it's even more holistic. You don't build it by piece, you have one project that is takes your whole being into that design. Right? Yeah. So it's even more... Yeah, it, you know, so, so if somebody comes to me and they want uh, a, a puhuro done, a traditional bodysuit, one of the things you have to think about is how do you balance all that history out? How do you uh, compose the, the certain areas so that they all blend together rather than a mismatch of throwing this in here for the sake, oh yeah, this will look good. It all has to, to balance out and look aesthetically beautiful at the same time, um, rather than look like a whole bunch of bloody uh, scribbles all over the place and, you know, chucking a bit of shading here, a bit of colour here to, to sort of boost it, you know. When you study the old, the old designs and whether it's uh, moko or whether it's carving or weaving, it's very, very simplistic, you know, but it's the simplicity of it that actually brings the power you know, it has a, a spiritual life force that's actually thousands of years old. Now, and that's how long we've been carrying those, those stories, that, that genealogy, that, the histories of our people and, uh, and um, everything that's connected with them. Now, for somebody outside our culture, like a non-Māori wants to have a, a piece of moko, they can have it, but that whole circle that we carry, it's just really starting for them. Now, should they uh, receive a piece from us and die with that piece and no one inherits that piece? That's the end of the story, man. That's it. Kaput. Finish. On the other hand, if their children start to inherit those designs, then at that point, that particular piece that they've received begins to have a life force because that, uh, that next generation has taken a piece of their parents' design and put it into their skin. So you can imagine for Polynesian people, Māori people, we've been carrying these things, if not in our skin, in our, um, our weaving, our carving, our paintings that we do, for hundreds and thousands of years. It's huge, man. It's, it's, uh, it's a great thing to be a part of, and um, it's certainly given me one hell of a trip. You know, I think if I was to fall over dead, today, I'd, I'd, it would take the coroner a, a week to wrench the smile off my face. <laughs> you know, I've had a good run, and part of that good run is because of my culture. Yeah. And uh, 
So you started tattooing in Auckland? Yeah. Like with the guy that you were mentioning? Yeah. And when did you go from there? Uh, I basically just kind of went out on my own, really. I mean, Hank kind of, opened, you know, uh, after that invitation from Hank, you know, one of the things that I realized when I was back here in New Zealand in the beginning is like, I really fucking need to learn how to technically tattoo, you know? The things that we were using was like, you know, rotary hose, you know, to dig up gardens and stuff like that. I mean, hand-built fucking, you know, chainsaws really, you know, and our power boxes, you know, look like transformers that should fucking run a city of lights, you know. I mean, we just didn't have good gear and, and, and a lot of the tattooists at the time sort of like keen on sharing their knowledge, you know. And um, so, so basically we had to do a lot of the learning ourselves. Now, what I realised when I met Hank was here's an opportunity to actually technically learn something, you know. So his invitation to go to, to LA, uh, he introduced me to a lot of Mike Malone and, you know, just tons of old school tattooists, you know, everybody knows Hank. And because you know Hank and, and you're a part of Hank's crew and stuff like that, I mean, whatever you wanted to know, machines, coils, you know, uh, power packs, whatever, you know, they'd tell you about it. And, and that trip, that very, very first trip, you know, I, I came back to New Zealand and I had a whole set of new gears. I was ready to boogie, you know. It must have been super inspired when you oh, came back. Oh, for fuck's sake, like... it was uh, super inspiring, man, you know. Went to Hawaii and, and, and you know, met Mike Malone because Hank says, you know, if you're going to go to Hawaii, you need to meet, uh, you know, Mike Malone. He'll build you a machine, you know. And I'm like, I can build me a machine? Well, what the, you know, I mean, really naive, you know. I don't build me a machine? What the hell does that mean, you know? And uh, and Mike Malone, he was a character too, you know, like he was like super old school. I walked into the shop, you know, and, and he was like, yeah, what do you want? You know, and I was like, uh, I hear you make machines. And he goes, no, I don't make machines. And I said, oh, oh, yeah, I was told to come here. And he goes, who told you to come here? And I said, Hank. And he goes, oh, well, why the fuck didn't you tell me it was Hank, you know? What do you need, you know? And it was kind of like, you know, that, that was my sort of it, you know? And uh, within a couple of days, he had made me a real beautiful sh machine, which I still have. And, and um, I came back to New Zealand, like I said, you know, like uh, really en enthusiastic about, you know, applying all this new knowledge that I had. One of the things that really impressed me uh, uh, within the realm of uh, Māori tattooing was um, our traditional body suits, the puhoro, um, and working with, alongside uh, Paulo Suluape. Uh, Samoan master, uh, who unfortunately passed away. Um, you know, watching them receive the pe'a and going through that process, it just it really, really inspired me to sort of like, okay, man, I need to make myself good enough to be able to pull one of these things off. And so I, you know, I, 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 I was like a drug addict when it came to tattooing. If I didn't tattoo every day, I'd, I'd start sort of, you know, shaking and, 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 and uh, get the itch on, you know. Uh, you know, get bitchy towards my wife and, and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, I had to tattoo, you know, like if the phone rang uh, and somebody wanted moko, I was like, right, I'm on my way. You know, if we went away for the weekend, it was meant to be just a family weekend, I'd pack all the gear in there and sure enough, I'd find someone to tattoo. But it was just insatiable. One of the things that Amsterdam gave me was skin, like bulk skin. So it was like a mad professor in a, in a science shop, you know, a little boy in a candy store. I just had copious amounts of skin to practice on. And, you know, I think 
it's safe to say without blowing my own trumpet the particular style of tattooing that I do people will always say damn you're fast you know and um, I've specifically trained myself um, to be that quick so that I can do a, a three-quarter bodysuit in three and a half four days you know and that's tattooing between you know good day four um, long day six so even then it's not long hours you know but I can cover a shitload of skin and that's taken you know that's taken me you know a good chunk of my 25 years tattooing to get to that level where um, you know you can pull those things off plus maintain the intricacies of what those particular pieces entail for me I use this metaphor like when we start a, uh, someone's bodysuit it's like we're on a canoe and we've just pushed off from shore and um, the journey is, is trying to navigate this person on the table so that it allows them to um, go through that rite of passage and we're the guides, you know, the, the, the artists are the guides and uh, the table is the, is the waka, is the canoe, you know, and, and um, if they're having a bad day, we have to be able to tack through that, um, preempt anything that, that will um, take our focus away from what needs to be done on that particular day. So I love that challenge and I think, you know, as I get older, I just really want to specialise in that type of work, you know, the, the big stuff. And um, for me, that, that, that's what really sort of floats my boat at the moment, you know. Who's to say in another five, ten years I might change, but at the moment, that's what I want to do. And I guess like moving here as well, which is more quiet and more like yeah. isolated and you can really focus. Yeah. Like when I walked in, you were carving that beautiful piece. Yeah. It helps you to focus on those big projects and yeah. really connect with them, I guess. And so when somebody comes here for a bodysuit, they have to travel here by themselves. They're separated from everything they know or everything that they're comfortable with. Um, and many times, I don't know them, so we have to have this connection right from the get-go. Part of our culture, uh, within our culture, we have this custom that we practice, which is called manakitanga, and it is the art of actually looking after somebody other than yourself. So, um, right from the get-go, you know, when you're embarking on a, a journey of like that, you want to know that you're in safe hands. That's my first uh, acknowledgement to that person is that you've come to the right place. You're going to be you taken know. care of. Um, we're going to take care of you. In fact, we're going to more than take care of you. We're going to fucking transform you. You come into the studio bare, you're leaving fully equipped, fully armed, fully armoured, and all those types of things. So we, the process that we have here and the fact that they have to travel here on their own and I've got them to my own for the next four to five days is really beneficial to being able to um, allow us to concentrate and focus on the work. Mm. And uh, you said, you use this word which I think describes it very well, rites of passage. Yeah. Especially with this big work, it really reminds me of this tribal, which even in different cultures, like I have some friends from South Africa that have completely different things, but kind of like the content is the same where basically you go from one stage of your life to another one almost like I wouldn't say become a man you know it could be a woman whatever but like becoming a sort of like adult contributive proud member of the society you belong to what would you say that 
that works with your type of tattooing is it is it like that like people have this type of change in themselves yeah well you know like when you're being tattooed to that extent forces your metabolism to react in such a way that if you don't come out of it a changed person then you're already fucking dead as far as i'm concerned <laughs> you know yeah. you're just a fucking zombie taking up fucking good air um I've literally seen it, you know. I don't try. I, I I don't always like to get too goddamn spiritual on it, but I've seen it and I've witnessed it over and over again. That you know these guys coming in, and even when they do have other tattoos on their bodies, um, whether they be moko or or Western style of tattooing, going through this this particular process, it challenges the individual on a daily basis. I I believe it really defines the reasons why they are who they are. Because you think about all those things when you're on the table, when you're being tattooed for that amount of time, you know, and, and, and you look down at, at your thigh and in one day it's completely lined and, and the details are going in, you know, they're, they're huge sittings. On top of that, there's the explanation of, of uh, the, how the designs are laid on the body. So we're going over that on a daily basis as well. So we're kind of ramming home the reason why you know that you're on the table for all that time and we're uh, literally inserting that information into these people so you know there's this old saying in tattooing you know when you tattoo somebody you're opening up the skin and when you open up the skin you have the opportunity to put something in so and that's what we do we we, we infuse them with their cultural histories give them a sense of place and purpose we give them uh, a, a sense of how our ancestors may have felt when they received their their moko you know so we reconnect with our our ancestors uh we we have um parts of the day there where in the morning we'll have a prayer and that prayer is is what we call a karakia the karakia is to um wake us up and let us know that we've uh, we've got uh, work to do and that it's going to require all of us in the room to bring a clear mind, a strong mind and a steady hand. So I have people um, also helping me stretch the skin so that allows me to pull a line, a longer line than normal and uh, get through the work a lot more quicker. So, I mean, these are observations that I observed when I was watching the Samoans go through their, their process, you know, and uh, adopting the stretcher and, and using it in, in the way that um, we can quicken the, the job, you know. Like, if you can shave off a couple of, of minutes, those minutes soon become, you know, hours, and those hours can actually turn into days if everything aligns itself to a point where the person is lying like a rock Everybody around the table is doing their job, and then boom, the magic goes, you know? And all of a sudden, it's over, it's finished. It's beautiful, it becomes like one thing. Like yeah. You, you guys, Yeah. just like one, yeah. one I mean, thing. A lot of my Western tattoos, including Hank, says, Hey man, that shit, you shouldn't be doing it. You shouldn't tattoo that long. You shouldn't do this, and you shouldn't do that. It's impossible, you know? But that's the thing that I love about it, is that it, this process that we have created it's unique to us as Māori, you know, we're the only ones that do it this way, you know, there are similar other, the Samoans have never stopped tattooing, so I mean, anything that they do with regards to tattooing, it's got to be that much more closer to the source of where it all started, because these motherfuckers never stop, 
through colonization, through the disease, religion. You know, religion and tattooing goes hand in hand. The church is there. The tattoo, the tattoo shop is right next to it. The graveyard's in the middle. So it's all connected. And they, they, they were the ones that, that hung on to that art form in, in Polynesia. Anything that they do, in my opinion, with regards to tattooing, it's got to be bang on, or if not close to, to the source of where it all begins, you know. In and around the table, you know, or the mat, as they use, you know. So, um, you know, they tattoo on the floor using uh, hand tools and stuff like that. And there's some of our boys that are, are, are doing that too. I used to use the hand tools, but I found, for me personally, I didn't like using it on people just because they had money to afford it. As Māori, we, we share a lot, but personally for me, there are some things where we have to keep for ourselves and traditional tools for me is one of them. Facial muko is another one and our traditional body suits is the other one. Now in saying that there's always an exception to the rule of you know there's a lot of intermarriages with different cultures now and stuff like that so if, if a white guy marries a Māori, a Māori woman and they have kids that in some ways gives them you know an opportunity to to, to, enter you know, to enter that type of thing but there's got to be a lot of discussion around it and that's the other thing too these aren't just things that you come in and, and simply because you've got the money you can have it there's a process to that too so even though these guys are coming in for their body suits it's usually a 10 or more years they've been thinking about it regardless of, of, of how much it costs that's almost irrelevant the payment for me as the tattooist tells me that they're committed because you're going to drop that amount of money you must be committed no one's going to drop that amount of money and just sort of pull out at the last minute process that we've created here with the house of natives you come you ain't leaving until you're done so i say five days but uh if it has to go to 10 it'll go to 10 but you ain't leaving till it's finished so it eliminates your thought process about like oh fuck if it gets too hard i can pull out no you can't pull out. Mm. Otherwise, I'll take you around the back and beat the shit of you. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. And how are people, I guess that your customer know you by now well, so they know what to expect and they know what's expected from them, And yeah. I guess, right? Uh, well, you know, I mean, nowadays you have, you have the internet. So if you don't do your fucking homework, well, you come and see me and you start playing up and I start barking. Oh, well. That's on you, it ain't on me. I'm just trying to give you the best you know, work I can. But if you're not going to allow me to do my work and you're wriggling around and fucking complaining all the time, well then expect a bark or be thrown out, you know. So, um, and I'll take your money too, you know, like if you can't handle it. <laughs> you know, all that sort of stuff. I think, you know, it's not only Māori artists that work like that. I think, you know, I'm, I've seen Hank, you know, and a few other old school tattooists, you know, like, give their customers a bit of a bark too but you know um, that's just the way it goes you know you, you want to do your best for somebody but if they don't lie still you can't you know yeah and then that's you you yeah. know what I mean like you can't you, you can only be you yeah I mean you can't rub the fucking Authentic, thing out you know yeah, yeah. and you have like you mentioned some more you have friends there you, have, you, you keep in touch you go there sometimes we some more to connect with that oh yeah 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 um you know, we've always had a good relationship with the Samoan uh, people and uh, the Hawaiians, Tahitians. It's always been a, 
you know, we're like cousins, you know. So um, whenever we're together and we have the opportunity to work together, it's always an awesome experience to kind of work with other Indigenous people. Even some of our Indigenous brothers and sisters over in, uh, you know, the um, United States and up in Canada and stuff like that, there's a lot of revival up there of traditional, um, you know, tattoo. It's always good, man, you know. It, you see sort of similar similar processes that they use you know and you know even though we're thousands of miles away it's kind of nice to have that similar path in terms of our process with with tattooing you know it kind of reaffirms for us our, our what we call whanaungatanga or our family connection you know on a greater scale but also our our, our, our western uh, tattooists you know i've met so many um tattooists over the years and uh you know i'm just uh in awe of their um mastery over over the art form itself you know whether it be uh, realism or dot work or hand poking or hand tapping or uh, color work or shading gray shading all that and it all inspires me in one way or another even though i have no interest in in doing anything else other than moko uh, i still get inspired by the you know the skill that it takes to um for these guys to put ink into somebody's skin and create the images that they do, you know. Like Hank does doesn't even use a bloody pen anymore, you know. He, he just freehands everything, and you look at it and you think, well, the hell, you know. But and there are a lot of other tattooists, you know. Tintin up in Paris, amazing tattooists, you know. Like just great um, skill and and dedication to the craft. I, yeah. I love it. Have you seen the stuff? Because I was in Aachen, which is in Germany. There is this big convention. Yeah, it's it's big. Mm. It's a smaller compared to others, but it's big in the term of, of the people are there. It's very nice. Yeah. And Hank was there. So one night, you know, we meet at a bar and we have a chat, we have a drink. And then he was telling me about these vases and stuff that he's been doing. And now they're exhibited or they've been exhibited or something in, in a very proper, famous museum, whatever. And then it's funny because it's like, look, and he did all this. It's, you know, it's him. You know, it's like did all these beautiful old school designs. And now here and there, they were like flying dicks and stuff, you know? Yeah, yeah. And it was in some sort of like royal museum, whatever, blah, blah, blah. But you have like these flying dicks. And I was like, yeah. that's so funny. Yeah, yeah. He's, um, he's, he's the ultimate in, uh, in you know, being an, as an entrepreneur, mm. you know? I mean, he's the only tattooist in, in the history of, of, of tattoo that's been knighted by the king, you know? And that, in terms of an acknowledgement to our industry, that's been looked upon, frowned upon, uh, you know, um, by society as a bunch of misfits and fucking, you know, bad eggs, you know. Uh, um, and here's, here's one of our own uh, getting knighted by the king for his services to tattooing. You know, this, this, um, this goes to show you how much times have changed. But, you know, if it wasn't for people like Hank and many other of his old school cohorts, that put their heads on the line, you know, when it when it was needed. Our industry would probably still be considered to be a bunch of misfits and 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 no gooders, you know. Do you think that would be necessarily a bad thing, or would be a good thing actually? You know, seeing the 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 way things are going today and the Instagram and these and that. Well, you know, I think there's always good and bad in everything, you know. Mm. Uh, you just have to find a balance, I think. Fucking Instagram, you know, I mean, I only use it for my work and, and, and you know, to, to find work. But, you know, it has, its, it has its pluses and it has its minuses. Yeah, it's just the way that the world is, you know, you've got you to kind of roll with the punches, but you can use it as a tool. Every day is a hustle. No one's paying my uh, wages uh, weekly, you know, I've got I to gotta do what I've got to do. But 
at the end of the day, I'd like to think that I, I, you know, I maintain my integrity of what I'm trying to trying to do too, because the art form itself it doesn't belong to me personally. It belongs to my culture. It belongs to my people. I'm a representative of my people. So if I'm being a fuckwit and I'm being a you know a, a fucking dick out there in the world, that doesn't just reflect on me. That reflects on my people. And so I you know I I try and use social media and I try and carry myself in a way when I'm out in the out in the world with some kind of dignity and some kind of um, person that um, is not an asshole, you know, because that's a reflection not just on my on, on my person but on my culture and on on the work that I do, you know. And uh, you know, there's this other old saying, you know, if you want to be successful, you need to surround yourself with successful people. It's no good going out there and you know if you want to be successful and you're going to hang out with a bunch of gangsters, because guess what? At the end of the day, you're going to be fucking patched up and fucking running around for them. At the end of the day, it all depends on what you want. If you want to patch or you want to be a successful businessman, you want to be an entrepreneur, then you've got to do what it takes to, to do that and surround yourself with the type of people that are going to enable you to sort of, uh, you know, uh, complete your, your goals and your dreams, you know. And that's kind of what I've tried to do all my life, you know. I've been very, very lucky that I ha have had good people on my side you know and when I've tried to sort of step off the wagon and uh, go down the the dark street there you know I've, I've almost been kicked out of it you know there's always been somebody there that's whether it's been my parents or whether it's been my grandparents my teacher Hinari Mahanga you know my friends my family always put me back online so you know I think uh, for me personally this is what I what I'm destined to do you know without sounding too cliche what you see is what you get, that's for sure. And I guess now your kids as well keep you anchored because you're like, oh, I have responsibility as well to, yeah. to be an example for them, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and my kids, um, uh, you know, for me personally, my kids are, uh, are my contingency plan. You know, once I'm gone, my daughter's tattooed, my son's going to be tattooed. Who's to say that my little six-year-old won't start tattooing? He's very artistic as well, but whatever path he chooses, you know, as parents, we're going to support our kids. But it is uh, somewhat comforting to know that if I do keel over in the next few years, that the work that I've um, been privileged to be a part of is carried on through my children yeah. and, and my you students. You must be super excited about going to Amsterdam with your daughter. Oh yeah, yeah I am. I'm I'm super excited because we're to gonna share that yeah, with her. you know to you know to do those sorts of adventures with her. Traveling with uh, one leg now <laughs> is um is not always easy and uh, brings a uh, you know a whole difficulties. But um, besides all of that, I am looking forward to um, introducing my daughter to my tattoo family over there because I consider Hank and all the crew over there as part of my family. I mean, we've been together now for over 20 years. So it's going to be a real um, privilege for me to um, introduce her into that family that I hold so high, you know. How long are you going to stay there? We're going to be there for a month, um, pretty much already booked. So, you know, people listening to this podcast here, forget about making any bookings, mate. It's already done. And have you been to other places in Europe? Yeah, yeah. I mean, over the years, we've we've been to a lot of a lot of places. Not just uh, Amsterdam. I was LA there and, and New York for for quite some time. Uh, Hawaii, Australia, Germany uh, for a little bit. France. Um, haven't been down to Spain yet, but uh, that that's. You've been to Italy. Yeah, yeah, to Italy. Yeah, where did you I go? Loved it. Yeah. Where did you go? 
when we were up there, we would we went to Rome, but uh, um, we were um, we were just there on holiday. Um, I haven't really been a part of the the convention scene. I I did a few conventions back in the early days. I it wasn't something that I really um, uh, connected with, only because uh, I think it gets back to you know my um, um, my thoughts on how moko should be presented, and I didn't really feel like that was the place to sort of educate people you know um, you know to me I'm still very very passionate about moko I still believe like many of the old Japanese masters they work from home and they have their studio at home and um, if you want it you have to travel for it you know and you have to um, humble yourself uh, not just to the work but to the culture that you're going to inherit in your skin I don't know going to conventions doesn't really sort of you know, fit. With yeah, yeah, it doesn't resonate with me. Yeah. On the other hand, I, one of the things I do love about conventions is the camaraderie of all the different artists meeting and, people, and meeting yeah. people. I like that part, but the whole kind of working there, I, I'd sooner go there and just hang out, eat some nice food and, and get uh, drunk with uh, the brothers, you know? Yeah. Don't get me wrong, I mean, you know, like, you know, people who collect tattoos and, and um, who get Western tattoos for whatever reasons are just as important in my opinion than same reasons why we get tattooed from a cultural perspective you know they that's a beautiful thing about tattoos they it doesn't matter what style or, or what culture it is they all have meanings you know to, to that individual who wears them and and that that's something uh, when i look at a tattooed person i think shit you know man uh, that that person's got some stories you know you can see them on their skin when you look at somebody with no tattoos it's kind of like what sort of a life have you had you're like a nobody. You're like a fucking ghost. You're there, but, you know, I can't see you. But when you're tattooed, it's kind of like, oh, I see you now. And I think that's really unique. And tattooing, besides sex, is one of the oldest professions on the planet. <laughs> you know? So it's been around for thousands and thousands of years. They dug, dug this fucking cat up in a cave. It was covered in fucking snow, but he had tattoos, and he was like fucking nearly a million years old or some goddamn thing, you know? But this, this, this profession that we, we, we are a part of, it's ancient, man. As far as I'm concerned, man, it's it's from the gods, you know. I it mean, never die. it really is. It'll never die. It will never die. Godless or trans. You know. Mm. And even though we have the big flash tattoo studios now, and the, you know the, you know, it's all kind of sort of modernized and stuff. You know, one of the beautiful things about the history of tattooing is that it comes from scoundrels and and pirates and 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 misfits. You know, I love that. You know, that that that, that it actually started with those types of people because, actually. You know, society might look at us at a, in a certain way and judge us, but really, I mean, it's people like us that fight all the wars, you know? Uh, you know, the, the working class people, you know, the, the people who struggle with, in, in life. Those are the ones that step up and put their heads on the, on the line and stand up for whatever it is that they're, 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 they're fighting for. And tattooing is a recognition of that, you know? They carry the symbols in their skins, you know? and, and um, they're proud of it. I know that, you know, there are people there, uh, Jews, for example, that, um, you know, their grandparents were, were you know, Auschwitz and, and places like that, and they had, you know, serial numbers tattooed on them. They're reclaiming those serial numbers and getting themselves tattooed with those serial numbers to keep those stories alive, man. I mean, that's no different from us tattooing particular symbols on there that recognize our ancestral connections to sacred areas, you know, of our, where our people um, lived and all those types of things. It's the same thing, man. Same thing, 
It's powerful stuff, the old tattoo. And like you explained, carving for you and, and your people, it's so connected to tattooing that they're not, you, you can't even separate them. It's, it's two sides of the same coin kind of thing, country, yeah. right? And you do a lot of that, right? Yeah. You do exhibition, I saw you working on this yeah. beautiful mask and how... Well, you know, I mean, uh, 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 carving for me is, is kind of like, um, it's kind of like my first love, you know? It was the first thing that really sort of like really shook me up as a person, you know? And, and you know, from a very young age, of uh, 11, 12, 12 years old, I picked my first chisel up and it was like, uh, right then I knew what I, I, I wanted to be, a, I wanted to be a carver, you know, and... Um, was your family into that stuff? Some no, family, no, no, no. Um, I just knew that that was my, you know, all I wanted to do, I, I just... Uh, like when I first got into tattooing, I was just insatiable with it, you know, I just had to do it all the time and, and carving was no different, but it was the very first thing that really connected me back to my culture. And um, when I was living up in Auckland, you know, uh, a few years ago, I had a, um, a couple of studios, I had a gallery up there and, and I had a, quite a large crew. You know, and with that comes all the politics and just running a business and, and, you know, trying to be successful. We had a clothing line, we had a TV show, we had all, we had it all. But it, it, it took its toll on me and, and um, you know, it was pushing me further and further away from my true passion, which is not just one art form, it's all of them. The painting, the carving, you know, the stonework, the tattooing, it was just becoming all about tattooing and I never really had time I didn't even have time for my family it was all about business and all of it was good and all of it was exciting and all that sort of stuff but I could feel myself getting further and further away from the things that I really really um, loved like carving and then I had my motorbike accident and then after that in my head I, I, I said to myself well I'm probably never ever going to carve again. It's it's very physical work. Um, takes a lot of um, discipline to be able to sort of create these things. Um, I might as well just stick with the tattooing, you know, and that'll see me out. And um, and in a, in many ways, that kind of upset me, you know, sort of like just from a, you know, in in my mind and. Um, I always think about it, and every time I looked at my chisels, they seemed to get more rustier and rustier, and it just kind of pissed me off. When we moved down here, and uh, obviously it's a lot more slower pace, and uh, again, I was thinking about the carving. I was like, well, I'm, I'm finally by myself, you know, and I can, um, I don't have a crew, I don't have the business anymore, I can just kind of, you know, Maybe I should get back into carving, but I kind of wanted to test myself a little bit and to see if I could still kind of do some things. So uh, I ended up building my fence around the house and I thought, okay, physically I'm still strong. Did you build that gate? That yeah. And then, uh, you know, and then I thought, oh, well, I'll carve some posts, you know, some those posts out there. So I did that just to sort of see if I could still mold, you know, like mold the, the figures and create the... I thought, oh, you know, I can still do that. 
And then I thought, well, the next one for me is like uh, surface design, you know, all the intricate designs and stuff, if I could see, and you know, and because uh, now I wear glasses when I'm tattooing and, you know, trying to focus on the wood is, was quite hard. But I managed to do it and I thought, well, fuck, I can actually still do it and now I have time to do it and I've, these last couple of pieces that I've done, those big masks, have just been uh, uh, carved for really the passion of carving and, and reintroducing myself back into, you know, the, um, the carving world, you know, and, um, oh man, it's been like, uh, um, yeah, it's like an old lover, eh? You just can't get enough of her, you know? You yeah. just want to keep nailing her, you know? And, and uh, I get up, uh, you know, uh, five in the morning sometimes and go out there and just chip away and, and uh, um, you know, there till like 10 at night if, I'm, if my wife left, lets me. And, uh, you know, I just love it. So these, these carvings that you see now, they're, they're, you know, this is all fresh, man. This is like, it's not something that I've been doing for the last 10 years. Nothing of this scale, nothing of this detail, you know. So it's, it's um, yeah, for me it's really exciting, you know. I've kind of got another energy boost yeah it's um, like a second wave of yeah creativity. yeah 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 you know so it's kind of nice to get that boost at this stage of my life yeah and it's good that you found out before it's too late that you needed to change yeah because sometimes you know you can go through your whole life and then you're too old and then you're quitting like oh fuck. yeah yeah you know? yeah you know it's good that you, you know? you've made it before you recognize mm. it too late you know mm. and yeah. i think it's a good change of pace as well like the carving from tattooing because yeah. it's there's no people involved so no. you don't need, it's very absorbing energy wise i guess with the people you know so yeah. it's just you in the wood it's almost like meditation kind yeah, of thing, it is. You know, like it music is. whatever yeah. yeah i find painting like that it's um therapeutic for me you know like i can just focus on that you know and um, and now that i don't ride bikes anymore i need to i need something else to sort of you know uh give takes, me that kicks your you know? head away yeah, yeah. And, you know, painting and, and stone carving and, and uh, wood carving. And, you know, these are all things that I really, really, really love, you know. And, and I got more time to spend with my little fella, which is also really important. And also spend time with my wife. You know, so uh, moving down here has been a real positive thing for me as um, not just as an individual, but as an artist as well, you know. Because I actually don't see myself as a tattoo artist. I just see myself, you know, people say, well, what are you, are you tattooist? I said, no, I'm an artist, you know, I, I like doing it all, you know. Yeah. There, if, you, if you ask me, like, do you like one or the other, I'm like, no, I like them all, you know, uh, and if I can do them all, I'm even more uh, happier, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, um, I can't shut my head down in terms of uh, thinking of designs and stuff, you know, um, I get it from social media, I get it from looking out the window. I it becomes it. an obsession. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, yeah, it's an obsession. I, I think I have a very ob obsessive um, brain, you know, it's, it's just, you know, once it sort of uh, attaches itself to something, uh, I'm all over it. And, um, and if you look back now, in tattooing or out of tattooing, what would you say you the thing that you're grateful for the most? Something that you... You just think about it and puts a smile on your face. What would that be? Oh, I've got to say that the fact that I'm still here to actually, uh, you know, talk to you and, and, um, and do the things that I do because, you know, in the accident, I nearly died twice. I should have died on the side of the road. And then when I was in hospital, I, um, I got a blood infection and I could literally 
feel everything that I had left in my body leaving. It was that close. And so that's given me, you know, uh, a huge appreciation for just being here and being a, um, still being able to sort of do what I've always loved to do, which is my art and um, promote my culture. Um, yeah, be active, you know, be active and, 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 and be pro um, Māori in terms of um, doing my, my small bit to add to the huge um, wealth of our culture. There are many of us around the country, many Māori that, do, that are doing some fantastic things, man. You know, and uh, it's nice to be able to sort of have your your part that you play in uh, the contribution to all of that. And is there is there something that you learned in your life that you you see yourself going back to some some important lesson? You're like, oh, I often go back to that thing, and it helped me out. Yeah, it's funny you should say that actually, because like for me, it's it's a. You know, when, when times are really, really hard and I've, I've had some, some beauties over the years, you know, that have really challenged my, my fucking soul, you know, and, uh, um, and the, you know, I, I kind of think about these things that have happened to me over the years and, and I think, shit, you know, like, those are the times when you, you hear about people sort of committing suicide or something, you know, it's just too much to handle, but, uh, I always reflect when times are really, really hard and I'm finding things difficult, I reflect on the, on the time that I received my bodysuit. And there were multiple times during that, that time that I thought, fuck this, you know, it's just too much, I want to stop. But for whatever reason, I pushed through, so I took myself. And I, and I know when I hit the wall again that, you know, I'll reflect on that again, you know, to, to help me get through it and push through. Um, and I use that metaphor a lot when I'm taking the boys through, you know, um, uh, their bodysuits. That you know, once you achieve uh, receiving something like this, there isn't anything that you can't achieve. Nothing, you know, because when you think it's hard, reflect back to those moments on their table, and there are a few uh, where you think, "Oh shit, man!" You know, you question everything. I'm doing the wrong thing. What am I doing here? I shouldn't have done it, you know. Yeah. I've started, oh my God, you know. So I reflect on all of that. And it's, it, yeah, the, my, my puhoro has helped me so much over the years. Uh, the other thing that, um, that has really, really helped me as a, as, as a person and that I, I, I'm always thankful for were actually the women in my life, you know. Uh, my grandmother, my mother, you know, my first wife, um, you know, uh, Ivanka that I my wife that I have now my daughter you know these females in my life have always been you know um, um, powerful forces in terms of being able to sort of like oh you know calm the V-set times you know and and um, make me see uh, you know uh, another perspective on on um, you know on who I am, they're the ones that can remind you of who you are and what you are and what your purpose is here on on this planet, you know. Um, yeah, those types of those types of people have um, molded me in a lot of ways, you know. Yeah. Uh, my uh, grandmother's um, uh, daughters, my aunties, 
powerful, powerful uh, humans, man, you know? Even when everybody's telling, you know, telling them that I'm fucking full of shit and, and you know, fucking uh, a no-hoper and things like that, you know, my aunties will get up and like, no, nope, you know, fucking, no, he's not, you know, and it's moments like that that you reflect on as you get older and you look back and you think, yeah, those are the people that really count. And, um, and they're the reason why you do what you do, you know. You get up in the morning and you, and you go through your, you know, your day. Those are the reasons why you do it. And, of course, you know, my children, all of them, um, those are powerful forces. And out of all the things that I've created as an artist, my children are my greatest creations, you know. Yeah. They, they, they're fantastic, man. You know, you can't beat it. Mm. Awesome. And if you could tell something somehow to your younger self, if you, could, if you could talk to yourself when you were like 16 or 18 with the things that you know now, what would you tell yourself? Um, probably try and keep my cock in my pants, you know. I was... A, 16 years old, those were my fucking years, you know, I mean, I was just, I mean, another obsession, you know, but it got me into so much trouble back in the days, but I guess, you know, if I had to really sort of seriously talk to myself, I mean, um, I guess I would just sort of say to myself, um, watch out for around the corner, you know, just be aware, because I wouldn't necessarily change anything, but maybe if I had been aware of a few things, uh, I, I may not have been caught out, you know, and, and um, or I may not have been hit, you know, or, or, or I may not have got myself into predicaments that I wish that I hadn't, you know. Um, you know, that's relationships, business, family, all those types of things, you know. But like I say, man, like I said at the very beginning, man, if I was to pop off to today, man, I, I, you know, would take the coroner a week to, to, to wrench the smile off my face because, man, I've had a blessed uh, life, you know. I've lived, uh, I feel like I've lived three or four lives, you know. Um, a bit like a cat, really. I think I'm running out. Yeah, I don't think I've changed too much, man, because where I am now is because of all of that, you know. And uh, because I was a, a smart-ass kid when I was young, you know, I couldn't shut my mouth and, you know, I'd always get into trouble and stuff like that. All of that, that person, all of that young person, is the reason why I am the person that I am today as well, you know. Um, so get everything for a reason. Yeah, yeah every, everything happens for a reason, man. And that's why I would probably say to myself, I'd probably whisper to my 16-year-old self, Watch out for around the corner. Be, you know, be alert. Because you never know what's coming around that corner. So, you know, if you can counter-attack it, you know, you might... You, you might you a might, little less naive. You get a little... Yeah. Yeah. Go yeah. on. Thank you so much for sharing this beautiful journey. Yeah, sweet Today, man. Yeah, sweet really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you so yeah. much. Awesome, man. What an episode. Tattooing can transcend the art form itself and bond people with their families, their values, their land. It's beautiful to witness how much power these patterns carry for the Maori people, way beyond trends and times. As always, I've learned so much through this interview and in the end of the day, this is why I do this. Behind the words of people like Gordon, there is a lifetime of accomplishments, defeats, comebacks, overcoming obstacles and realizations. 
It's condensed life in its purest form and I always feel lucky and honored when these men and women open their house and their heart to share their stories. I hope today's episode entertained you, inspired you, and you bring home a little bit of Gordon's spirit. Until the next time, have a wonderful day. Thank you.